Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening here today. Sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Reclaim Me. I'm your host, Madeline Heather. Reclaim Me is a true crime podcast told by those at the centre of those crimes, the victim survivors. The general public often hears stories of victim survivors through the lenses of perpetrators or the media, and we're changing that narrative here. These interviews are raw and honest, so a word of warning is necessary as discussion and topics may be triggering or distressing for some listeners, so please use your discretion. If you need help or support, please see the suggested resources in the show notes of this episode or contact your local crisis service. Hello and welcome to another episode of Reclaim Me. Today I am joined by Jake Burgess. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome to you too. <laughs> nice Thank to meet you. you. You too. I'm, we've just been having a wonderful chat before we started recording and I'm I'm so grateful to have you onto the podcast. But for those that don't know you, do you mind introducing yourself, who you are and what you do? Oof. It's a big list. <laughs> so I'm Jake. I work in the not-for-profit space and my career is in that space. But outside of that, I do work in domestic violence, which is generally unpaid as a what would you say, a lived expert who shares my journey of experiencing family and domestic violence and sexual violence in that domestic violence by a woman, which I'm always reticent to say because I recognise that men are the majority of perpetrators. But as a trans person, which is what I am, there's a kind of nuance and unique experience that we often don't talk about. Absolutely, and I actually think it's, so important to identify women as perpetrators as well. And I think we, not because it needs to take anything away from men largely being the perpetrators of domestic violence, but we also need to work together as a community to destigmatize what it means for people who are victims of women to come forward. And I think that's why, you know, Harrison James was on this podcast a, a while mm. back. And just to be able to have those open discussions where people can leave their preconceived notions behind and we can change from the old reticent, like what was the the old movie with Adam Sandler in it and the references that are consistently made throughout pop culture about people enjoying abuse when it's from a woman? Oh, yes. Like that movie Horrible Bosses. Oh, that was actually, I rewatched that the other day and that was actually oh, so shocking. horrific. The, the level of what she's doing as an offender and the fact that they're making so much fun of that yeah. guy for being sexually harassed. And, him. Yeah. 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 It's one of those movies where you think this is not funny. Like who, who are we as a society that we went, Hey, here's a good idea for a movie. Let's talk about how women rape men and make fun of it. Yeah. And, and take photos of it. Jump forward and tell us their stories. Right. Yeah, and it's that age-old, like, she's good-looking, so, you know, anybody would be lucky to yeah. have it. But, you know, I, I'm sure yeah. we'll keep going um, on tangents because I think it's, it is important. <laughs> it is important to raise, and that's where, you know, both of us have that shared passion because our lived experience has shown us, and we both know, I think, so much how sharing our lived experience can impact others. So it's absolutely mm. valid. Yeah. I often talk about, in my own experience, I have this, 
really strong clinical knowledge about lots of these things because that's the space I work in. But I just felt isolated as a survivor because even when someone was supporting me in a really genuine and caring way, they didn't get it. And it was meeting other survivors that made me feel less alone with my journey and more empowered. In, I hate the word empowered, but empowered in my journey to be seen and know that someone believes me and, you know, they're here for me. Yeah, I really feel that same thing. And I've reflected on that being the most impactful in my journey also. Journey also is something I hate saying. It's so fluffy. <laughs> but, um, it is because I think as well, and I've reflected a lot on why with my therapist recently, and I think one of the reasons I feel maybe like uh, I personally, I don't know how you feel about this, is I think it's because I always, not only was I lacking an understanding from people I was talking to, but I was lacking a feeling of having permission to speak, almost like mm. I felt like I was a burden all of the time whenever I'd raise it, like I should yeah. be over it. Um, what was your on. experience? Yeah. Exactly the same. And that's even with people, you know, I have people in my family who work in this space and they will, you know, they will say it's time to move on. And that's not how trauma works. That's not how recovery works. If you've ever seen in mental health, we talk about recovery a lot and it's not this linear process and it doesn't end. It's a journey where you decide what it looks like. You decide if it ends or doesn't end. You decide everything about it and how that's going to, how you're going to achieve that recovery. But my experience from people who, in, in people who love me, who care about me, it's this time to move on. And that's absolutely true to not stay stuck in it. But for many of us, and it was one of the things I was thinking about today, is, but especially those of us who've got kids, we never actually escape the domestic violence. It continues in our life for the rest of our lives because our children will be engaged with that perpetrator, so it's harming them and indirectly harming you. And for a lot of us, they continue to find ways to harm us. They don't stop. They just this constant process that you're working through and people don't want to hear about it people don't want you to be able to process it my best friend said to me recently I was going through a really tough time I had to do a family law subject and I didn't realize I had all this trauma related to it and I would say it to my my sisters you know we have this great chat group and they would just kind of ignore when I talked about it and my best friend said to me maybe that's just not the, the right space Maybe they're not the right people for this part of the journey. And I thought that's actually really special for you to recognise that. And then she offered herself as that safe. And, and I'm generally someone who's not a talker about feelings and expressing my distress. And we would sit, me and my best friend would just sit on the phone and I might be painting or something like that. And we'd just process it and think about it. And she'd let me just blah is the word I use, this kind of um, word vomit. And I didn't need anything from it. I just needed to be heard. And, and it's was, such a yeah. space people can be as friends or as advocates or as allies in any way is that sounding board when somebody just needs to let it out. And yeah. the validation that what they're feeling or experiencing is is valid. You know, even yeah. if you don't understand it, just having somebody there to listen to you and care means so much. It does. It does. And not hearing that message that it's time to move on. Yeah. Because that's just not the reality and most victim survivors or thrivers or whatever you call yourself will say the same thing. You can be 20 years down the track. You can be 40 years down the track and things come up and sometimes you don't expect it. It can be the most random thing and you're like, oh, whoa, whoa, something just happened. I'm not okay. Um, and you've got to work out what to do next. And if there's those people in your life who are who 20 years before are saying, move on, they're not recognising the journey of recovery. Absolutely. And trauma does. It shows up in the oddest of places at the oddest of times. Yeah. And yeah. even when you share your story consistently, I was on a podcast recently and I've shared my story a number of times, but this person just asked me a, just a very specific question and I'd not thought about it in, the, in a certain way that they asked me and I just burst into mm. tears. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Well, they were trauma-informed and lovely. But... Oh, do you know, it, this happened to me. I'm a non-crier. 
So I cry probably every five or ten years at most. I mean, just I've never been a cry. Even as a baby, it says in my baby book, you never cried. Wow. You would just go into a corner and sit on your own for a little while and then come back. That's always been my process. And that recently, like I said, I had this family law subject and I was pretty, pretty traumatised by it. And I went to a work event where I was, you know, the professional in the room and there was three, 400 people in the room and they brought this group out to talk about trauma and it was just something about it. And I started crying and I went, oh, my God, where did that come from? Luckily, I have really great colleagues and I went outside and actually a number of them said the same thing, something about what happened with this group sharing their their service and what they do and they had a lived experience survivor up there talking about their experience of the program. It just hit a lot of us for some reason. And we just had a big group hug out. <laughs> but yeah, you just don't know when it's going to come up. That's truly incredible as well, though. And I think as advocates and people like yourself in this space, to show other people around you that it's okay to have emotions too and to be mm. collegiate in that, I think yeah. is incredible because I've spoken to so many advocates lately who are feeling isolated in their depression or like they're failed in some way because they're having a uh, maybe a downturn and this work is is exhausting and it can be triggering and you don't sometimes when you're working in this space you don't want to admit that it's impacting you but yeah yeah I think like people like yourself who are veterans yeah There's there's a lot of pressure to be brave and bravery is considered not being affected by the things we see hear experience and that's just not real not the real experience. Recently, I spoke at um, the Domestic and Sexual Violence Recovery Conference, and there was a number of victim survivors there who shared their journey. It was an incredible um, conference. Half the speakers were people with lived experience. It's a very targeted approach and very important approach. And I was talking to someone on Monday about it who I was there with, and we said the most, it was incredible. We learned so much, but the bit that had the most impact on us as people was when the whole thing was over and we were all sitting outside, the people who were left, and some people just had a big cry, some people had hugs, some people had a vino. You know, we all just did what we needed to do in that moment, but it was the the camaraderie, I can never say that word, camaraderie of being together and having people who had very different experiences. You know, there was some people there whose family had been murdered in domestic violence and some people had really different experiences, but we recognised each other and we sat with each other and they didn't, you know, there's there's always this worry for me that I'm a man in a space that's really, you know, 52% of women experience violence in their life. I don't want to take away from that story or take up space, but I also recognise that I'm part of that story. And I'm always kind of balancing the two. But they just said, you know, you're one of us. You're one of us. And we all sat there and we had this big, we were all around each other with our arms around each other. And it was just, that was the best part for us. It's really beautiful. Yeah. And Mm. that's, again, like coming back to that community of survivors and how important that is. Mm. Absolutely. We've made, I guess, references to some of your previous experiences. But do you mind sharing, I guess, a little bit about what your history of of family violence was? I mean, I have several, but the biggest thing was domestic violence in a relationship where I had children and it went for 10 years and I transitioned from female to male, although I would say from me to me. (laughs) Yes. Um, In the last kind of two years of that relationship, uh, I experienced pretty much every if you were going to go for a list of all the behaviours of domestic violence, I experienced all of those kind of tick boxes, sexual violence, financial violence, emotional violence. My ex was, and still is, is really dangerous and has a history of raping people and really horrific behaviours. And I experienced that sexual violence. But I also experienced kind of the nuances of that while I was transitioning. And even prior to that, you know, to give an example, there were parts of my body that you couldn't touch. It was just a no-go zone, don't do it. It will make me really upset. And I don't want you to do it. And she would consistently do it and say, you want me to do this, you just don't know it. Or you need me to do this. And then laugh about it when I said it 
didn't want you to do that and it made me upset. She was laughing. So I experienced physical violence and I had children with her and then went through family court, as I've mentioned, and that was pretty rough. I had a really, really bad experience in the family court, mainly because if you know anything about family court, there's these people that have to, they often get involved, which is called a single expert, and ours was a psychiatrist, and um, she, I look, as you see me now with this giant beard, and she refused to call me he. She called me she throughout the whole appointment. She at one point asked me to take my shirt off so she could see my scars. She yelled at my husband like it was a really bad experience. And when I read her report, what I could see through the whole report was this misnomer about trans people, which is that we are somehow hiding something or being deceptive because we're not showing our body parts to the world in the way that people expect. And you can see that all through the report. Everything I said, she presented as not true. And she said when she confronted my ex about the sexual violence, my ex burst into tears. And that was the end of it. She interviewed me for an hour and I paid $6,000. And all her arguments were that, you know, there's something at risk with me. And there were, I mean, there were lots of little things like that. So you go into the family court hoping to be to be seen and to have some protection for you and your children, and the family court just perpetuated the domestic violence. Like at one point, she charged at me in the family court when the judge had stepped out of the room, and the associate was laughing. Thought it was hilarious that she was charging at me in a courtroom. You know, it was pretty. It was a pretty rough experience. So I went from. 10 years of this domestic violence to then four years of family court where I experienced even more extreme domestic violence. Like many people, the coercive control in my relationship was really extreme and the family court perpetuated and supported it. And so I experienced an extra four years of that. And then I moved two hours away from where I used to live so that she couldn't just turn up to my house because she'd come here and steal things and um, she killed our animals a few times. And, you know, really, sometimes she'd just go to my house and leave my daughter's jumper on the front steps, you know, and that continued for a number of years. And so then I had to deliberately buy somewhere where no one could approach the house. And I've been able to stay safe. And now, you know, it's been, what year is it, 2023? It's been 13 years. Wow. And she doesn't turn up anymore. But all my neighbours know who she is. I'm very lucky to have great neighbours. They all know who she is. They know what she looks like in case she ever tries to turn up. And I have a note, you know, like lots of people, you don't ever really escape those people. My ex is a psychopath. She, she's not just experiencing kind of narcissistic behaviours. She's got some histrionic mental illness symptoms. But it's really psychopathy. She doesn't care and she finds it enjoyable to hurt people. So I experienced some pretty rough stuff and I'm still recovering now. I've got a bit of, what would you say, emotional disassociation. I don't get upset about anything. So I'm trying to kind of reconnect with those feelings and it's really hard. It's really hard. And it's been 13 years. And I'm still working on it. And sometimes I don't know if, if you have had this experience, you realise that something that happened or something someone said is in your head, is a belief. For me, that I had one just recently where I realised there was this belief floating in my head that I was lazy and I'm not lazy. And if you knew what I got up to today, I haven't had a break. Same as yesterday. I stopped working at 1.30 this morning and was up in the morning doing other stuff and getting kids ready for school and, you know, it's, I never stopped, and but I believed this thing that she had consistently told me. And I spoke to someone, actually spoke to someone in my family as a social worker, and I said, I've got this going on, what can I do? And so they said, well, every time you recognise that it's there, replace it. And I did that, and after about six months, it, it's, it's not, they, those kind of thoughts that someone tells you over and over and over again, they become pathways in your brain. And you, your brain finds it really easy to go straight down that pathway because it's what's known, right? So you have to kind of replace it. 
So that's what she, that's what my sister, who's a social worker, did, is I replaced that pathway with no, I'm not lazy at all. I'm an overdoer. <laughs> and I need to take take it down a notch. <laughs> yeah, take a break. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, that's incredible. And thank you for sharing that. You, I mean, you shared a lot. And I think there's a lot in that to mm. maybe discuss. Hard but to I think unpack, isn't it? it is, it's, and it, there's so many layers for you. I mean, as somebody who's experienced extended and prolonged abuse, as somebody with children, as somebody mm. navigating family court, which is known as one of the most horrible experiences anybody can go through, and mm. to be also vilified for transitioning and being a trans man, mm. like that is just so yeah. unacceptable. Yeah. I mean, my ex, my parents are Pentecostal Christians, and they're quite, my dad is quite conservative. My mum's not so conservative. But when I left, she was being, you know, often they escalate after you leave. Her behaviour was horrific and I wasn't complying and she kept threatening to out me to my family and I hadn't come out to them because my mum was in the middle of cancer treatment and she knew that. So she kept threatening that she was going to out me as a um, revenge and she did. She added me to my family while my mum was in her treatment, which I was really lucky. My parents just said all we care about is that she breached your confidentiality, which is incredible. And they've been my support ever since. But that was horrific for me. It was horrific. And I was already, you know, I had a lot of internalised transphobia and homophobia because I grew up in the Pentecostal church. I went through ex-gay therapy, you know, all those kind of things. If Ex-gay therapy is also called conversion therapy. Conversion therapy, I yeah. did all those things. Trying. So I had this really, a lot of work to do. And then my first experience in the family court, my first, very first hearing, the I wasn't there, but I heard all about it from my lawyers. I was lucky to get free lawyers through an anti-violence project. And um, in the first hearing, she argued that because I'm trans, I don't exist under the law. Therefore, I have no right to access my children. Oh. Now, it was thrown out and she got, in quite, she got quite a bit of grief about it. Was that but your easy- ex-partner or the other lawyer? That was my ex-partner and, and her lawyer. So they argued oh. that in the court and the judge threw it out, threw that argument out. But to even think that that's acceptable, to think that using the fact that I'm trans, there were so many things related to me being trans that they tried. You know, my do- at the time my daughter was probably, I think she was five, and they argued that I was a child abuser because... My daughter, since she was a baby, always showered with me. And she was five, so she showered with me. And her and her lawyer said, it's my disability that I need to hide. And children shouldn't see it. It would just confuse them. And the the psychologist agreed and reported me to child protection. Yeah, so I had lots of those little things happen a lot. And it meant that while I'm trying to feel confident in in myself and I'm trying to recover and I'm trying to transition in a way that's gracious and kind to the people around me, I was also experiencing fairly extreme transphobia from her. Yeah, and I think you said that twice now, that there's lots of little things, but these individually are such huge, huge, horrible, horrible things. Like that's, it's such a Davo kind of, you know, reversing the victim-offender framework kind of to turn you into an offender to try and make the other person who's been perpetrating violence. And I'm sorry, but everybody grew up showering with their parents, or most people did. Yeah, yeah. I did, and And I thought nothing of it. Neither did I. You know, I remember asking my mum about, like, what pubic hair is and how much, you know, I just have little memories from being a kid. Normal bodies. Bodies are just bodies, right? Yeah, and if you make them. same bodies. And we're yeah. just hurting that child by shaming people. The, the scary thing is, like, how recent, really, this all was. It wasn't that long ago. And no. to see the state of what's happening in the world right now with trans people, how how is that impacting you as a person who's experienced not only the domestic abuse but the institutional abuse? It's been pretty tough. And I have to tell you, I'm going through family court again at the moment, not for my children. Um. And the entire argument is presented as somehow being trans as part of the issue. 
So one of the arguments is that we're trying to force a child who's female to be male. That's one of the arguments, so that the child should be removed. And that's just not true. And there's no evidence for it. So, and, and the reason we want to make this child transition to male is so we can use them in the media. And I have no interest in doing that, none at all. But it, it it's predicated on this belief that if you can make trans people look bad and you get a transphobic judge in the court, that they're going to believe those narratives. And they consistently put she and mother and all these other words, not just me, that this is about, I'm not the mother, but this is consistently happening. And it, it's really hard to hear that all the time. And it's heartbreaking to hear. And then in the media, you see all these people doing it as well. You know, you hear these, it, we hear a lot from what's happening in America or like in Uganda right now where they've just made it a death penalty, the death penalty if you're a GLBTQ person. Like this is very real. There's a real danger. You see, if people know you're trans, in where I live, I live in New South Wales, and I live in a semi-regional area, and we are having, at the moment, every time council has a meeting, there's an anti-trans group turning up and threatening the council and being really aggressive, and the police have to be there. We had an event maybe two weeks ago, a trans bake-off, a cake-baking thing where trans people just get together to connect and not feel so alone. And we had to have um, a group come and be security because we didn't know if we were safe. And luckily we were on the day, but we're certainly not safe to go to council meetings at the moment. We can't go into council buildings because we don't know if they're going to arrive and abuse us and threaten us. So it is a, it's one of those kind of dichotomous things where you try and forget it's happening. You know, you've got to keep living your life. But at the same time, you feel under threat all the time. And you're already, as a victim survivor of domestic violence, where you don't escape that person, you're constantly under threat. It's not surprised that people's you know, parasympathetic systems are in overdrive and we're seeing anxiety, we're seeing stress, we're seeing, you know, one of the highest suicide rates in the world is trans people. And it's not because they're trans, it's because of discrimination. So it is, it's a tough journey to be on right now. But I'm now in a, I mean, it's 13 years, no, it's more than that since I transitioned. And I feel really confident in who I am. So it's not, it's not something that I feel doubt about anymore or scared about anymore. And I have a very big family who are very accepting. And I've always had accepting workplaces. So I have that strength behind me as well. Yeah, and I think but I shouldn't need to have it, right? No, it's it's brilliant that you're in that position now and it's probably mm. taken a really long time to get there. Yes. Yeah. But when I first came out to my parents the first time <laughs> as bisexual, I think well, my, uh, I got out at that time too. Um they disowned me. And that journey has taken 20 something years when I told them I was having children with my ex. My parents said I was a child abuser because they weren't the kids weren't going to have a parent of each sex at the time. Now my mum says I'm the best parent she's ever met. And, you know, I'd do anything for my kids. And my family called me the kid whisperer because I, I get it, right? I get kids and I know how to connect with them, you know. In a, and the research shows that this kind of belief is nonsense. There's no evidence to support it. You look at the evidence, what it actually says is you want the best outcome for kids, there's a slightly higher, better outcome rate with lesbian parents than any other parents. Like if we're really going to talk about it, let's get rid of heterosexual families. We should all be lesbians. You know? I'm all for that. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's a silly argument, but you get my point, right? No, but it is. It's so true. And it's just like the people that are perpetuating that aren't addressing the domestic violence rates, especially, you know, and you think about that heterosexual couple norm where domestic violence is so prevalent, you know, Mm. there's no acknowledgement in that of how damaging family violence is to children. None of of that is occurring. And it's just a completely false argument that people are having and I think it's Kids just... Kids are resilient, right? They'll <laughs> move on. They'll forget about it. They won't even remember. And that's actually partly true, right? They may not remember what happened, but their body and their mind does because it changes with those moments. And we see it in their responses. You know, I'm raising my grandchild and her behaviours are horrific. And it's taken three years for us to get to a point where we're not being beaten up. And... That's just because of domestic violence. You know, they're learned behaviours, but they're also trauma responses. She wants to be safe, so she lashes out to try and protect people. Interesting. It is, and I think there was a study that was done as well that said, you know, people who have gone through domestic violence as younger children, they have worse outcomes, you know, educationally in a number of different ways, and they've got higher rates of depression and higher rates of anxiety. And, think it comes back to just not being able to regulate in a way that yeah. is yeah. is normal being able to calm down like you said yourself being able to take yourself up and calm down a little bit as a child rather than having a tantrum um that's <laughs> i was a big tanty gal <laughs> i was not but my sister was <laughs> you know we're all different but my granddaughter is a, a big tanty person we had a massive one today Big summer blowout, as I call them. Have you ever seen Frozen? There's a guy, a little Dutch guy, and he goes, oh, big summer blowout. <laughs> That's what I call it when she tucks the tanto. But they're not tanto tantrums like the average kid. These are extreme explosions of behaviour. But she's now at a point where she recognises it and tries to sort it out. So she then had a shower. The shower went for two hours. But she came out, and this is how far she's come. So when she first arrived, she was beating herself every day. And not just once, like all day, every day. We don't haven't had that for months. And she wouldn't do anything to regulate herself. She went and had a shower and she came out and apologised. That's incredible progress. And it's giving her a chance at a future. But if we don't acknowledge that there's a problem in her behaviour and we don't get the support that's needed, then we're going to end up with more crime. You know, people say, we don't want crime. We don't want someone to rob us. We don't want assault but you're not prepared to do the work to fix it. To prevent it. This is the prevention space and this is giving another person a chance at a more fulfilling life, something that they can actually enjoy as well. It's 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 about them. If you want to be fiscal, right, you want to be government, it's actually going to save us money because we'll have less people in prison. We'll have less people um, unable to work and traumatised and in that cycle of um, poverty. There's so many things that addressing family and domestic violence would do to, to our society, both to make people feel safer, 
but also in terms of enjoyment, connection, belonging, and then for government, it's, say, it's going to save them a fortune to spend the money on and invest in prevention. Absolutely, and we saw a lot of that funding kind of be removed, the preventative measures over, you know, the last few years and the last few mm. budgets as well. It's mm. it's we're spending so much, and even Queensland, I think, implemented that new. Was Anastasia Palaszczuk? She announced that they were going to re- lower the age limit for convicting children of serious offences, and it was just unhelpful. like that's unhelpful. It's so not going to help anything. You need to invest. And it's a really difficult topic, especially when people who are children commit crimes that are horrific. Yeah. We if we can't rehabilitate anybody, especially like a 10-year-old, then we don't have anything in place that's usable, right? Like then punishment prison is only work. for punishment. Yeah. It doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. So why are we still doing it? But using my granddaughter as the example, she has four assault charges, but we advocated for her. And we advocated with the police and they didn't put the charges on her record. So even though she's got the charge, it's not on her record. Because we knew that if she ended up in that system, she'd just keep, we'd see her going into actual prison long term. We'd see horrific crimes. All it would do is tell her that nothing's going to happen and nothing's going to get better. And instead, we did a different pathway where the police supported her. They're incredible, actually. And now we're not seeing her commit crime. So what, imagine if we did that for everyone instead of punishing 10-year-olds. Yeah. It's crazy. And how incredible for her to have the advocacy of yourself as well to be able to to know enough to to advocate in that way and to give her mm. that that chance mm. to, to heal and to learn and to develop as well. Yeah. You've just t- touched on something which I think, people often don't realise, which is I have all the resources. I have the privilege of knowledge. When I left domestic violence, I had the privilege of knowledge. I've been working in this space since I was 20 and I left when I was, I don't know, 30-something, I think. <laughs> I've lost count. Um, <laughs> and But I had the privilege of knowing all the resources in the community. But the reality was that for someone like me, there were none. There were no services I could access. I found one, which was this anti-violence project, and it was an inner-city project. And if you didn't live in the inner city, then you weren't eligible anyway. Luckily, I did. So I was able to access it, but there was literally nowhere I could go. One of the most, I think, things that we need to talk about is the Le uh, domestic. Le I yes, love that the... you say that too. <laughs> <laughs> the it's LGBTQ. A... <laughs> I love it. Um, um, I just think it's so important that we talk about being any part of that rainbow um, mm. and experiencing domestic violence, domestic abuse, sexual violence, any of those types of things. We need to speak more about them. I think that yeah. there is a rhetoric sometimes where those things don't occur maybe or that those yeah, things are less prevalent. Forgotten. And, you know, we do – as allies and as people a part of the rainbow, I identify as a part of the rainbow as well. I think when we look at these things, I don't know how to describe this. It's like I feel like sometimes maybe pride and everything makes me feel like I don't want to talk badly about the community in any way. Oh, and yeah, I get that. You're not saying anything bad. You're you're addressing and realising that any person, a part of any community, can cause harm and can be affected by violence. And yeah. I just wanted to make that clear, like this being somebody who is a victim of violence, it doesn't discriminate, and it doesn't discriminate with perpetrators really either. They can be a mm. part of any community from any cultural background. And I think, right. yeah, how does that land? I mean, look. We know, for example, that the more patriarchal any kind of society is, the more domestic violence there is, right? So we have that data. But if we're talking about LGBTQ relationships, it's different. There's a different narrative happening. We know, for example, that the rates of family and domestic violence in LGBTQ relationships is on par with perpetration against women. When we talk about trans people, that number is around 75%. So three in four trans people experience family and domestic violence. Separate from that, I think there's a bar- there's additional barriers, right, to leaving. 
one of my barriers, for example, was I felt like having grown up in the church, I went to Christian school. All my friends historically were Christians. You know, we were all involved in the church. And I felt this pressure within myself that if I left that relationship, what I was telling all those Christians is that our relationships weren't equal because we didn't stay in long-term monogamous relationships. It was a real narrative in my head and it stopped me from leaving many times. And it also helped me go back many times. I left so many times. And so I think it's an important conversation to have because if we're not talking about it, nothing changes. And those rates are horrific. They're horrific numbers. And we we know, for example, we you know, if we look at our numbers of people who are murdered in family and domestic violence, we're talking 300 plus women a year, maybe not that much, maybe, you know, 50 a year. It doesn't matter. When we're talking about men who experience family and domestic violence, we're talking about a number of people somewhere between zero and nine per year that die, men, in domestic violence, and the majority of those are in uh, homosexual or in a male-male relationship. And so we have to talk about this because our other death rate is gay men or men who have sex with men, however you want to put it. And trans people also experience more serious violence and there are additional barriers to leaving. You know, one of the barriers, again, for me was when I did have to speak to police, I had to out myself and I was terrified. I didn't know what I was going to experience. I was really lucky. I had a good experience. But I've also had really bad experiences with the police. And also my professional life, whether it was a LGBTQ person or just a person going to the police to talk about domestic violence, police often don't believe people. They don't take it seriously. You know, I had messages that my ex had written where she says, I know I'm a domestic violence perpetrator, but I'm not the worst kind. So you should forgive me or uh, admitting to assaulting me in a text message. And it was never enough for the police to believe it. It doesn't mean they didn't try and get an ADR and things like that because there were other things that she was doing at the time. But people don't believe those experiences. And they also think, it's hard to explain, but it's like, in my experience, because I was being perpetrated against by a woman, I would have people say, why don't you just hit her back? Because women are weak, right? That's where that narrative is coming from. Women are weak, so just hit her back and she'll stop. And I'm not a misogynist. So (laughs) number one, I'm not listening to you. But number two, I'm never going to hit anybody for any reason except maybe to protect myself. There's this really, let's say famous, that's the worst word possible, but we're going to say famous incident in my domestic violence, which lots of people knew about. And she presented it as her being a victim. And what had happened, luckily, my cousin was there, so she saw it. But what had happened is that she trapped me in this room in the house and then King hit me from behind and then I was trapped. And the only way to get out was to push her out of the doorway. And she's much taller than me. And I pushed. And I have not short fingernails. And I scratched her with my fingernail on her face. So she claimed to people that she was a victim of domestic violence. But I wouldn't, no matter what, I wouldn't hit someone. But you do have to protect yourself. And often perpetrators will use that. But going back to that statement, it's like, so what if she's a woman? It's not more, it's not less serious because she's a woman. Women tend, if we're talking about data, you know, women tend to be more psychologically violent than men. And men tend to be more physically violent, but it's still really serious. That I always say to people, I would rather take a punch in the face any day over psychological violence. And I've heard many victim survivors and thrivers say that. Because uh, that's the stuff that's stuck, you know, it's still there. It's a bit of glue that I'm still slowly peeling off. You know, in primary school, you'd put glue all over your hands and slowly peel it off. That's what, it, that's what it's like for me. It's like I'm taking each little piece off one yeah. by one. And like you said before, you've got those neural pathways that have been just there and you're still yeah. trying to create new ones to try yeah. and undo the damage that was done. 
if someone punches me in the face, I can go to jail. Whereas if you say, um, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, she would. She tried to convince me at one point that my dad had sexually abused me. And she tried this for about two years. And she would say it was prophecies from God and all this sort of narrative. It didn't ever really... I got to a point where I was confused, but I never believed it. But unpacking that takes time, and it's often hard to pinpoint. You can't say to someone, this is what she did. Because it then becomes a you versus me, right? Maybe they didn't say it. You know, if I tell the police, well, she threatened to kill me, but there's no physical evidence, there's nothing the police can do. If I say that to someone as an incident, they go, well, it's really serious, but it's not as bad as if they had, you know, knifed you or something, <laughs> you know, something really serious. In physical violence, it's very different. And even then, people don't believe people who have been assaulted. Yeah. So, yeah, I was thinking about that before. It's... I'd still, still, still to this day say I'd rather be hit. And I think most people kind of express that similar viewpoint. And, yeah. you know, I've worked with a lot of victim survivors and they all have said that same thing. Yeah, because the bruises heal, right? That was the, yeah. from what yeah. I've spoken to most people, the, the bruises heal, the, the damage that's done that you can't see is the hardest to work on as well. Yeah, and some of them are things you can't, you can't work on. Um, in the sense they could be physical injuries or neurological injury that, you know, I was reading recently about um, strangulation. Yeah. And strangulation is the greatest risk factor for um, someone to be murdered and coercive control, and that it only takes 20 seconds of strangulation for someone to give you a brain injury, which is not, it seems like, I mean, in the moment, it feels like it's going forever, but 20 seconds is not a long time. And people can end up with significant brain injury and things they don't realise are brain injury because it can be hard to figure out, right? And then there's all the kind of functional neurological disorders and things like that where it can be related to abuse. And then you've also got all of the other things in life you know, mental illness coming into mm. it with depression mm. and anxiety and other maybe PTSD. Co- coexisting conditions. Yeah. And, you know, life never stops throwing shit at you either. Like it's. That's right. <laughs> I said that today. <laughs> exactly what I said. <laughs> I, I, I was, my mum's my staying at my house today because we have a family member who's dying and she lives near me. My mum's staying with me at her sister. And we were just talking about like, it's crazy how much is going on right now in our lives. And then today I've got subpoenaed to someone else's court case. And I'm like, oh, come on now. This is, a bit, this is getting funny. <laughs> Life doesn't stop giving you new traumas. But what they often do is they kind of become a web. You know, the traumas interweave with each other. And then it's even harder to unpack and work out. Sometimes you don't need to. You know, sometimes you don't need to work out which thing it is. You just need to work out how to get past it. But there's things with me, like I've got PTSD and I can't control when it's going to be triggered. And sometimes it's triggered from random things, really unusual things. And I think, what I don't even know why this is happening right now. And other times it can make me clinically depressed and I can do nothing about it. I just have to ride the wave and know that at the end of the wave, I'm going to be okay. I'm still, you know, one of the things, one of my PTSD things is that whenever something happens with my kids where she's done something or, you know, um, made some hurtful thing happen, I get suicidal every time and I can't seem to stop it. But I'm now at a point where I know it's just the feeling, it's not me, I'm not the feeling, and that the feeling will pass. Mm. But if I don't talk about that feeling, if I don't acknowledge it, all I'm doing is keeping it there as a cycle that happens in my head and it becomes a permanent cycle if I don't address it. But it's actually really hard to address. Yeah, that's really powerful. Mm. I'm, and I'm sorry that that's a continued thing that you have to go through. It is really important that we talk about it though as well. And I think mm. so many people will relate to that feeling too. Yeah. And it's okay to feel like that. I think we we really go away from talking through the current things that we're going through and dealing and we try and talk yeah. about everything as being healed. Yeah. But how... 
how do you go navigating all of that? I mean, you've been through so much. Do you feel like maybe, you know, knowing that it's how bad it's been and that you've come through it is a part of being able to cope? Yeah. If you are privileged to be able to escape domestic violence, I call it privilege because some people can't leave. For me, I was in a position where I could. I was also in a position where I wouldn't become homeless by leaving. I feel this sense of it's actually given more to my life. I, I wouldn't take the, the experience away for lots of reasons, main one being my kids. I would never take that away because they're spectacular. But I also don't want to have experienced it. And I want people to believe me, right? There's no justice in domestic violence. We don't get justice. Same with sexual violence. There's no, you're not getting, it's, number one, almost no one gets a charge against their perpetrator. Yeah. But number two, it, it's, it, there's no justice for you as a person, but you can still become everything you need to be. And I look at myself now, 13 years on, and I go, wow, I when I left, I was studying when I met her. And I had to stop studying because she wouldn't work. And so I had to work. And I never stopped working. And so I then decided the first thing I did was go and study again. And now I've got one, two, three, four degrees. And I never excelled in my career when I was with her because I was always in trouble for working. Or if I wasn't working, I was in trouble for not working. If I didn't um, get enough money, you know, there was just all this pressure. And so I couldn't excel in my job. So I never got offered management opportunities. And now I'm third in charge of an organisation, you know, and I lead these incredible programs that I adore and I'm passionate about. And I have the privilege. Sometimes I think it's an unlucky privilege that I can connect with people in a way that no clinician will ever be able to do. You know, when I sit next to someone who says, I'm a victim survivor, I can look them in the eye and get it. Often when we talk about some of those things that actually happen in domestic violence, people don't quite get it. They know it's bad, or even then, sometimes they don't even realise how bad something was. You know, there's someone I know who, in their domestic violence experience, the other person mirrored their telephone. Do you know what that means? Like they've copied the phone so they can see everything happening on the phone at all times. Yeah. And you think that's not that serious. Actually, it's a crime. But separate from that, a lot of people will hear those things or like someone standing over you. I remember someone saying to me, my ex would scream at me for hours and hours and hours. And I would just sit there and take it because I was never going to hit someone, and she'd do it in a way that I was trapped. So she'd trap me in a room or whatever. And I I know that unless you've experienced what that's like, that terror, that exhaustion, that confusion, you won't really ever get it. You'll get it on an intellectual level. But when I sit with a victim survivor and I can say to them, I see you and I see that experience and I get it. It's an, it's an amazing thing. And people reach out to me now. And that's a privilege that I've got because of my experience. Wow. When they're, you know, they're victim survivors and they go, oh, Jake's been a victim survivor. I'm going to tell him. It happened to me two weeks ago. It's incredible that someone would trust me enough. And it's because I publicly speak about it. So when we say, you know, there's all this horrible stuff, domestic violence is awful. No one's going to pretend it's not. And it, it you recover in a topsy-turvy kind of way that it just keeps popping up every now and then. But at the same time, I look at my life now and I go, I'm so happy. You know, I'm married. I've been married for, I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know how to history it. But uh, we've been together for 10 years or something. And it's so easy. And I never knew it could be this easy. And it doesn't mean it's perfect, you know. Sometimes I want to kill him, not literally. Yeah. <laughs> but I also adore him. And I would never change it. And it's so easy and it's like I don't know, like it's just a comfort in a way. And I 
have all these opportunities in my work and you know one of my things was that I always wanted to do art and it was, I kept doing little things to start that when I was thinking about violence but it was impossible because my job was everything I had to take care of the kids clean the house do all the things and then she would have these pretend crazy moments and I'd have to manage those you know it was just taking up my whole life so I never got the chance to do art and it was what I always wanted to do and now I'm a professional artist and I have solo ex exhibitions and my my artwork sell for a couple of thousand dollars each and it was because I left and I have a husband who supports me in who I am and gives me space I was saying to you before the room I'm in now talking to you is my art studio and it's my own little space and I love it and I couldn't have had that if I hadn't one, I wouldn't feel the joy of having it as well if I hadn't experienced domestic violence because I know what it's like to not be able to have it and have it taken away all the time. And now I just have the joy of having it and I can use it as a therapy tool too <laughs> and do. <laughs> That's incredible as well. I think you're exactly right. And I think, you know, it's important when we acknowledge what we've gone through to not be grateful for the person and for the, you know, I always kind of say to people, it's important that we don't give them credit for where we are because yeah. you're the person that's been subjected to something, but everything that you've done to get yourself out of that is the reason that you're here now. And yeah. I think that's a really important thing for you to be able to have the art and be able to do that and to be able to be an advocate and an expert um, and be able to be there for other people who are experiencing violence and somebody that people can connect with and give yourself another purpose mm. in that sense as well. It's it's repurposing the pain into many ways that can become wonderful. And it's just truly like amazing to hear you speak about your experience as well. Hi there. It's just Maddie from the editing room popping in to wrap up part one with Jake. We will be back same time next week with part two. So please make sure that you join us then. Additionally, we will have another Friday episode dropping. So keep your eyes and ears peeled. It's going to be a wonderful discussion and I'm so happy to be bringing you all these additional podcast episodes where I can talk to people who work in different areas of the community, whether that be Kat from Polished Man, Jake Lambert from Movember, and we will be bringing somebody different this week as well and I really can't wait to drop that with you. We have an amazing discussion. It is angry making, but we are both so passionate about potential reforms and changes and and the way that the system works. And it's a really, really wonderful discussion. So thank you so much for listening to Reclaim Me. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you do need help or support, please reach out to those crisis services or suggested resources in the show notes for this episode. Have a look after yourself and make sure that you're doing and taking the time that you need to process the information or to process anything that may have come up that was triggering for you. Lastly, I do have one ask. Can you please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any platform that you listen to Reclaim Me on? This helps tremendously with me reaching additional people and making sure that we get the word out there that there is no shame or stigma that should be associated with being a victim of these crimes. If you could also share this podcast with somebody you may know, as you may not be a survivor yourself, but you sure as hell know one. Thank you again. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.